0: Well, welcome, everybody. If you don't know me, my name is Brian Forbes, and I have the privilege of pastoring the Young Adult Ministry here. And once again, I'm just excited to be with you this morning. And as I was writing this sermon, it dawned on me that a theme has been emerging in my sermons, where I begin my sermons with an embarrassing story about myself. And some of you are catching on to this theme. And today I'm going to leave that part for later in the sermon, okay? There's a... Something coming where I might embarrass myself. I might have my worst faux pas ever in front of you guys and gals. So we'll wait for that moment until then. But today we enter back into a series that we're calling Dear Beach Point. And in this series, we're paying really close attention to Paul's letter to the Colossians, where Paul was writing to encourage and to warn his Colossian friends. He was writing to encourage them and to warn them. And the ultimate aim of this letter from Paul was to help recenter this Colossian community around their commitment to the Jesus life, around their commitment to the way of Jesus. And that, my friends, is exactly the reason that you and I, in that beach point, uh, that's the reason we're reading through this letter, that you and I might be centered or recentered in our commitment to the way of Jesus. Last week, Bill uh, started the series in Colossians 1, and he helped us to see this simple yet profound point. It went like this, that in light of Jesus' ultimate rule, we should put Jesus first. In light of his immense rule, we should put Jesus first first. And on reflection, this point um, sort of has this like sounds easier than it is effect to it. It's the kind of point I think we all hear and we think to ourselves, yes, yes, of course, of course put Jesus first. But then as soon as we begin to try and implement the point, the difficulty begins to set in, right? As soon as you actually try to practice putting Jesus first, the difficulty begins to emerge. So one other way you can think about the goal of the series or the goal of today then is as an attempt from me to try and help us understand what just does it mean to put Jesus first? And more than that, how do we actually do it? How do we actually put Jesus first? Today then is something like a sequel to last week's sermon. And so to get us up and running, I want to give us a little bit of background on the Colossian community. And as it turns out, we actually don't know that much about the Colossians. Um, This church was sort of obscure in this way. And according to um, scholars and even some of Paul's own remarks, it doesn't even look like Paul himself has met these people before. In fact, the only reason Paul knows really anything about the Colossian community is because because of his good friend and delegate in the gospel, Epaphras. So while Paul was in Rome, imprisoned, Epaphras visited the Colossian community and then went and visited Paul while he was imprisoned, and he gave Paul um, the details on this community. And the details sort of went like this, hey, Paul, uh, the Colossian community, they're doing pretty good. Um, Things are pretty much in order, but alas, these folks are not perfect. Um, Indeed, there were some false teachings or heresies that were circulating the Colossian community. And so Paul then responds to, these, to this update from Epaphras with this letter to, to basically give them the solution to their problem, give them the solution to their problem, to give them, in other words, the answer to this question, how shall we put Jesus first in our lives? What does that amount to and how do we actually do it? So that's what we're going to see from Paul today. And I want to tell you, it has everything to do with our foundations, So let's pick up in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Page uh, 1183, if you're in the Bibles in front of you. So here's Paul. He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, a neighboring city, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Pausing here. Paul is struggling, that word contending, I'm contending for you. Another way to put that is Paul is struggling for these people. And do you know this experience? This experience where you love someone so much that when they struggle, you struggle? Or this experience where uh, you're so connected to another person that you can essentially feel their feelings that they're feeling? If you know this experience, you know that it can actually be kind of a blessing and a curse, right, depending on how how strong the feelings go. And this is exactly Paul's situation. What's interesting, though, remember, is that Paul has never met these people. And so this alerts us to the fact that Paul's love for these people who are committed to the way of Jesus runs very, very deeply, And then we get a statement from Paul about his goal for these people. And his goal, he says, is that they would be encouraged in heart and unified in love. He's really clear about this. I'm writing to you so that you'd be encouraged in heart and united in love. Now, the encouragement we know has to do with the fact that the Colossians were doing pretty good. But what is up with this bit about unity? I mean, Paul here seems to be suggesting Um, That they ought to be unified in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. Be unified in love so that you may know the Christ mystery, which is that Christ and only Christ contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So pause to think on this for a second. What is it about being unified in love that is going to enable the Colossian community To understand the Christ mystery better? What is it about being unified in love that's going to set up the Colossians to better understand this Christ mystery? What is it about us being unified in love that's going to make it more likely for you and I to understand the Christ mystery? Here's my answer. When we're unified in love, we tend to listen better. When we're unified in love, we tend to listen better. We're more prepared to understand what might otherwise remain a mystery. To see this point, think on your closest relationships, your best friendships or your marital relationship or your relationship with your um, significant other. Uh, and now bring to mind those conversations, or more specifically, those arguments that you have, uh, where you're just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and on and on and on. And then finally, someone in this conversation pauses to say, wait a second, what are we aiming for here? What is our goal in this conversation? What is the thing that we're after? And then, voila, you both start making progress in the conversation. Have you had this? Exp- I have this experience every other week with my roommates. Um, and <laughs> just to be honest, um, there's something about being unified that makes us better listeners. It turns out that good listening is essential to good understanding, and so we end up then with this really beautiful Pauline point. It goes something like this: Being unified in love enables understanding. Being unified in love enables understanding. When we're better listeners, we're better prepped to understand. And so Paul is saying, seek unity then. And this isn't just crucial in putting Jesus first, though it's crucial there. And this isn't just the only way to enable understanding, but it's also crucial in defending against these fine-sounding arguments Paul is talking about. He says, seek a sense of togetherness with one another. And we get the same message from Paul in Philippians 2, 5, where he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What's the mindset? One of humility. Humility. But Paul isn't done with his Colossian friends. Um, He has more to say about how to defend against these fine-sounding arguments or these false teachings. He's got more to say that is about how to put Jesus first in your life, about what it means to put Jesus first in your life. So picking back up in verse 5, Colossians 2, verse 5. Here's Paul. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. He's in prison. And delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So Paul here is basically saying, I'm delighted by y'all. Y'all are doing really good work. I'm really impressed by your discipline. Right, Good things here. And then Paul launches in to this set of teachings on, but don't let up but don't stop the good work that you're doing. Continue to live your lives in Christ, he says. Now why? Why is he pressing these points about not letting up? I believe he's pressing these points because Paul is attuned to the fact that there are these false teachings circulating the church. In other words, Paul is attuned to the fact that there are these forces in the world of the Colossians and in our world's, These false teachings, these forces that are fighting us every single day to be first in our lives. These false teachings, these forces that are fighting us every single day to be the foundation of our lives. And for the Colossians, these these heresies, these false teachings were composed of formal uh, Judaic practice on the one hand together with a little dose of Gnosticism, on the other hand. So they had this sort of complicated combination of teachings that were fighting to be first in their lives, that were fighting to be the foundation from which they act and move. And Paul is saying, as a way to defend against that, Paul is saying, as a way to remedy this situation, as a way to put Jesus first in your lives, he gives us this point, and it's our big idea this morning. Dear Beach Point. To put Jesus first, build your life upon him. To put Jesus first, build your life upon him. To resist these forces, these false teachings. To put Jesus first, build your life upon him. Root yourselves in Jesus. Continue to live your lives in Jesus. And doing this, says Paul, is the way for the Colossians to combat these deceptive philosophies, these forces in our world that are fighting us daily to be first in our lives. And I have a friend um, who's had to deal with combating these false teachings before, teachings which promised her a good life were she to build her life on them. So can you help me welcome Jillian Clossy to the stage to tell her story? Yes, Jillian.
1: Good, good morning. I came to follow Jesus out of the Mormon faith. I was not raised Mormon, but started attending with a close friend after high school. I met my husband, Joe, at the singles branch, and we were engaged a month later. You might remember his story uh, from when he shared last April. We were very active in the Mormon church, and our son, Brandon, was two when things fell apart in our life. We got pregnant again and miscarried, and then we had a hard time getting pregnant. And the Mormon beliefs, if you are a person in good standing, then you should have a good life. And a big part of that is to continue to expand the kingdom of God by having kids. If you're not doing that, you must not be doing enough works to be blessed. But I could not believe that this is something God would purposefully do. My foundations in this belief system were shaken, and I began to question the Mormon beliefs, and eventually we left the Mormon church. After several years of attempts and losses, we finally got pregnant through infertility treatments. Unfortunately, our daughter, Grace Ray Clossy did not make it. I was angry at God and wanted nothing to do with him. We moved to a new house and found a little church near us. We still believed in God, so my husband encouraged us to go. We went, but I was angry and so broken. But it was during this time of heartbreak that God was able to enter into my life. As I heard about the about Jesus from the Bible, I learned that I was not blessed just by doing good works, but because God loves me, no matter what. I made the decision to follow the real Jesus and to build my life upon him. Now, making the transition from Mormonism was very confusing. I was deeply ingrained in their teachings. I had even taught women other lessons from the Book of Mormon. Now here I was in the Christian church trying to figure out what was true. I dove into church and into, bi- into the Bible and started trying to make the transition in my mind from false teachings to the truth. The process took quite a while, a couple of years. I attended Bible studies and talked to people about my confusion and questions. I talked to the women in the church and Bible study leaders. Even now I still have times that I have to return to the Bible to make sure I'm understanding everything correctly. I also had to get over being angry at God about our struggles with infertility and all of our losses. I realized that my desire to have a baby had become an obsession. Something that I was trying to build my life on. And that he wanted me to release that and to trust him. I surrendered that to God and we started trying to accept that God may have something else for us. We started pursuing adoption when we got pregnant. It doesn't happen for everyone, but it happened for us. After our losses, my pregnancy was filled with fear. It was a terrifying time, and my new faith was really put to the test as I had to trust God every single day of the pregnancy. On March 15, 2014, our daughter Ariana Grace Clossy was born. We found our way to Beach Point two years ago, and it is now my privilege to be part of serving our church family here. I help lead worship through singing, and I'm a co-leader for the eighth grade girls. Yeah. (laughs) I absolutely love every single one of my girls, and it is a huge blessing for me to help lead and guide these girls in their walk with God. God is teaching me, as well as them, that he is the only thing worth building our lives on. I hope that they can look at me and know that it's okay to have questions. And it's okay to not be perfect. But I know that we have a God that loves us no matter what. And that's a great place to start.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Jillian. That's not easy to do. And what her story, I think, beautifully illustrates is that Jesus is the only foundation that can sustain us that can grant us security and that can grant us stability and Jillian's story exemplifies that beautifully and remember where we started today we started with these with these questions what does it mean to put Jesus first And then how do we actually do it? How do we actually put Jesus first? And so far, I've suggested that to put Jesus first, you've got to build your lives upon him, right? But you might reasonably wonder, but what does that mean? Like, good, to put Jesus first, build your lives upon him. But what does it mean to build your lives upon Jesus? If anything, Brian, it sounds like you just sort of pushed the question back one And I think that Jesus actually has the answer to this question, this question about what does it mean to put, to build your life upon Jesus? So we're going to turn to Matthew 7. It'll be on the screen, verse 24, getting the answer from Jesus here about what it means to put, to build your life upon him. Julian's story, I think, beautifully exemplifies this. So Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, referring to the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings as teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So, what does it mean to build our lives upon Jesus? What does it mean to root ourselves in Jesus, to continue living our lives in Jesus? To put it simply, it means to put Jesus' teachings into practice. How? Do we put Jesus first in our lives? I think the same answer holds. You put Jesus' teachings into practice. Rooting yourselves in Jesus, continuing to live your lives in Jesus, building your life upon Jesus, upon the solid rock. All of this is to seriously try and put into practice what Jesus taught. The wise person, right, is the one who hears Jesus' words and puts them into practice, now, while writing this part of my sermon, I was reminded of this season in my life um, when I just really struggled with money. And I just, in particular, I like, didn't know how to hold on to it. Every time I had some, I just spent it. And so I went to uh, one of my good friends who is good with money, and in all seriousness, I asked this question. Do you know of any good budgeting strategies that don't require discipline? <laughs> I seriously asked that. It's embarrassing, but I did. Not the embarrassing thing I was talking about earlier. And, uh, uh, and, and like, like a nifty program or something, you know, that you just, you give your money to it and it'll take care of all the hard stuff for you. Well, his answer was this, No. There is no such thing. And my friends, I think the same thing applies here to this question about how to put Jesus first. Is there some way to do this that doesn't just require you to put Jesus's teachings into practice? No. Is there some way to build your life upon the solid rock, upon Jesus, that doesn't just take you to having to put into practice what he taught? No. There is no other way around this, I believe. It's then, once we put Jesus' teachings into practice, it's then and it's only then that I think we'll begin to experience the eternal, abundant life. The life which, as Paul says, overflows with thankfulness. Flourishing in the kingdom of God, I think, comes with putting into practice the wisdom of Jesus and the wisdom of God. And Dallas Willard nicely notes that once we realize who Jesus is, literally the smartest person who's ever lived, the one who contains not just some, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Once we realize that, then we'll realize that discipleship to Jesus is the greatest opportunity we will ever have in this life. Now, I wish I had time today to give you all um, some more teaching on like, how to put each and every one of Jesus' teachings into practice, because some of these are extraordinarily difficult. Forgiving your enemies, that's hard. Um, loving the marginalized, giving what you your excess to them, these are hard teachings. And unfortunately, I don't have the time to go through them all. But what I can offer you is um, a couple concrete steps for how you might begin this foundational work, how you might begin to root yourselves in Jesus and to build your lives upon Jesus. So like every building project, you just have to start with your foundation, There's no way around it. And you can't build a strong foundation until you remove the old one, the one that's weak, the one that's incapable of holding you up and giving you stability. Take our building out there that's being built, for example. We had to dig roughly, I don't know, eight to 12 feet into the ground, removing all of the old stuff, all of it. There's a huge, huge hole out there. And we had to do that before we could start the new foundation, before we could lay the new foundation. Because had we not, had we just decided to build this new building on top of the basketball courts, rest in peace, had we just done that, yeah. that building out there would have been vulnerable even in Fountain Valley's craziest storm. Okay? 10 mile per hour winds and some sprinkles coming from the sky. Even that, even that would have made the building. Vulnerable to coming down. It wouldn't have been safe to occupy. You have to start then with your foundation. You've got to move out the old stuff and lay a new one. For the Colossians, Paul was really worried that the heresies of their day were going to lay that foundation for them, the false teachings that they were dealing with. But if I had to guess, um, not many of us are fighting these really formalized systems of religion. Maybe some of us, but not all of us are in a situation like Jillian's. Instead, um, we fight other false teachings. We confront other sand that is tempting us every single day to build our lives upon it. And as foundations for living upon, these false teachings that we confront are extremely faulty, utterly incapable of granting us the security and stability that can only be found in Jesus. Indeed, um, building our lives upon them would be something like building our lives... Upon this BOSU ball, enter in that part of the the part of the sermon where I might have my biggest faux pas ever. So how does this go? For many of us, the teachings that we confront every single day, uh, the false teachings that are uh, fighting to be our foundation are like this BOSU ball. So I've got a couple examples. How about the false teaching on money? How does this one go? It goes something like this. That if you just make enough money, if you just have enough of it, never run out of it, have a good surplus of it, then and only then will you feel stable. Will you have the security and fullness that your heart is so longing for? Now, I'm not ignorant. I understand that we do need some money, right? The world we live in forces us to have some of it. The false teaching I'm talking about is that this is, money is the way... To enjoy stability and security. If we make this false teaching our foundation, we commit our lives to living on a Bosu ball. We live on sand. Some of you know how this is going. What's another one? How about the false teaching on romance? So, how does this one go? Romance. You know, it's a gift from God, it really is. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, the foundation from which we live our lives, it becomes problematic. So for some of us, we're under the impression, I deal with this every other day, just to let you know, that romance, if I can just find the perfect soulmate, if I can just find the perfect person, then my life will be stable and secure. Then I'll feel like I can live my life. For some of us, we've made our spouse our foundation the person who is, is going to grant us the ultimate security and stability. And that they cannot handle that pressure. For some, it's our significant other. Romance, a good thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes like us standing on the BOSU ball. When we live from that false teaching as our ultimate teaching, we commit our lives to life on the BOSU ball. We commit our lives to life on sand. So the last one, because I can't do this much longer. <laughs> the last teaching that we buy into is the one on status and recognition. And so how does this one go? This one, <laughs> just casually making sure, if you're listening to the podcast, I'm, I'm balancing on a balancing board right now. Uh, this false teaching on status goes like this, that in your, this one's dangerous because it can get you from any avenue of life. If you're a student, it'll hit you in academia. If you just become the smartest person in your class, if everyone can see that you are intelligent and that you say coherent things, then you will have stability and security. For some of you, it's in your job. If your coworkers just see that you really are good at what you do and you live your life from that, then you'll have security and stability. Same thing applies. Not bad in and of itself, but once it becomes our ultimate teaching, the foundation from which we live, then we commit our lives to life on a BOSU ball. We commit our lives to lives on sand. Okay. Okay. still have one more service to go. This is getting <laughs> troubling. Woo. So all of these pursuits, notice, money, status, romance, there's so many more. All of these false teachings, which by the way, are the, it's a false teaching when it says that this is the way to live your life. This is the way to enjoy security and stability. They all have this in common, that they become problematic once they become ultimate. All of these false teachings become problematic once they become ultimate. And you know it's tough to notice when something becomes ultimate in your life, isn't it? Like how do you know when something has gone from being okay, right, to uh uh-oh, it's become ultimate. It's now the foundation from which I'm living. How do we know this? This is challenging because, for instance, when I'm standing on this thing, it kind of looks like... A foundation. when I'm looking down at it. You know what I'm saying? It kind of looks like, oh, that could hold me up. I, I mean, when I'm looking down at it, actually, it sort of even blends in with the stage. And so it looks to me like this is a good foundation. But notice this, that to everyone who was watching, to everyone who's not me, nothing could be more obvious than that this thing cannot hold me up. Nothing could be more obvious than that before long, five minutes, five seconds, Brian, your muscles are going to give out. And the worrisome part is if I stay on this thing long enough, I can get pretty good at it. I can develop the relevant muscles. Just give me enough time. And then it'll feel like I'm still just standing on solid ground. But to everyone on on the outside of my life, they can see this thing is not going to do it enter in community, enter in friendship, enter in your relationship with your spouse, your, your relationship with your significant other. These people see things that we cannot see ourselves. And that's both a gift and kind of scary. But we need it. We need people who are up close and personal in our lives to help us see when we are building our lives upon the wrong foundation. So a little bit of a challenge today, if you're feeling up for it. Go to this person in your life. Go to this good friend you've got. Go to your spouse. Go to your significant other and ask them, hey, so-and-so, what do you think I'm building my life upon? Does it look to you like I'm building my life upon sand? Or does it look to you like no, like I'm actually doing a good work of building my life upon Jesus. Sometimes we can, do, we can be doing both at the same time. But more than friendship, more than other people in our lives, if we're going to do this kind of work, we desperately need Jesus. We desperately need to have a rich prayer life that is constantly depending on him for a stability and security. This work is only possible, really, through Jesus' power and his gracious and merciful help, help which results ultimately in our genuine transformation. This is why the invitation from him is to yoke yourself to him. Why? Because his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and in him you find rest. So today I invite you to consider, either again or for the first time, to put into practice what Jesus taught, becoming thereby like the wise person who doesn't just hear what Jesus says, but who hears and puts into practice what Jesus says. Notice no claim at all that this is easy work. Indeed, just the opposite is true. It's difficult. This is why Jesus calls this life a life of sacrifice, a life where we lay down our agenda this is hard work, my friends. And so I end with this response question. What is your life built upon? For some of you, you look at this and you, you, you can notice already, I need, I'm going to need some help I'm from the outside to answer this question. Others of you have been thinking about the thing, like all the last 10 minutes. It's right there. But what is your life built upon? Recognizing that if you want to make progress in this, if you want to build your foundation, if you want to build your life upon Jesus, you've got to start with the foundation you currently stand on. And unfortunately, unlike the foundations that buildings are built upon, our foundations are, uh, we can't just set them and forget them. Why? Well, it's because our foundations are composed of beliefs, of desires, of intentions, of longings, of hates. And notice, all of those things are subject to change at the drop of a hat. This tells us something. We have to attend daily to our inner lives. It's not enough to just do the things Jesus did. This is why Professor of Philosophy, Steve Porter at Biola says, it's not enough to just do what Jesus did. You've got to do what Jesus did the way that Jesus did it. You've got to do the Jesus things the Jesus way. How did Jesus serve the poor? Humbly. How did Jesus include those on the margins into his inner community? Sacrificially. Jesus didn't act from a vacuum. He had desires, intentions, beliefs, longings. Building our life upon Jesus, it's not going to be done overnight. This is going to take an entire lifetime to do. But it's worth doing because, after all, fullness, flourishing, wholeness, peace, shalom, all of these things are found in and only in Jesus. So, as we continue in worship, I just want to give you a couple moments um, before we sing to just think on that response question. We'll have it up here on the screen. What is your life built upon?